out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Good afternoon. It is the last four days of 100 Days of Call-In. Thank God. So, uh, we resume the re- redo. We're redoing the reading of Chapter 14, the last chapter of the trial of Julian Assange, the persecution, the title here, let me get it right, the trial of Julian Assange, a story of persecution, thank you. Okay, so we're going to resume with the Anglo-American show trial. The show trial begins. The trial for Assange's extradition to the United States began on 24 February 2020. The public gallery at Woolwich Crown Court next to Belmarsh Prison only has space for 16 observers. To get one of these coveted seats, people started queuing outside the courthouse in cold and wet February weather before dawn. However, even those lucky and determined and organized enough to end up at first in line when the doors finally opened could be arbitrarily denied access without explanation. Thus, on the second day of the trial, WikiLeaks editor Christian Hrafsnesson was about to enter the public gallery when a court official called out his name and function and informed him that the judge had decided to exclude him from the hearing. It was only when Assange's family members threatened to leave the courtroom in protest that Hrafsnesson was allowed to enter. Representatives of the press had to observe the trial by video link from an adjoining room. The quality of the transmission was appalling. Throughout the morning of the first day, the legal counsel for the prosecution, James Lewis, was barely audible, and Judge Veritzer could not be heard at all. In the course of the trial, it would become increasingly difficult to escape the impression that the eyes and ears of the public were not welcome in Veritzer's courtroom. Given the excessively obstructive restrictions imposed on Assange, it almost looked like she would have preferred to exclude the defendant himself from his own court hearing. Like a violent criminal, Assange was locked inside a box made of bulletproof glass that was placed in the back of the courtroom away from his lawyers. During the hearing, he was not allowed to receive any documents from his lawyers to pass notes to them or even to shake their hands through the narrow slit in the glass front. From inside the glass box, Assange had difficulties hearing what was being said in the courtroom. When he repeatedly signaled the problem to Judge Veritzer, she blamed it on the background noise made by demonstrators outside the building, even though this could only be heard faintly inside the courtroom. When Assange tried to speak, Veritzer cut him off and insisted he could only be heard through his defense counsel. But when his defense counsel asked the judge to allow that Assange sit with his lawyers during the hearing, which would have enabled him to give proper instructions, she refused the request, claiming with a straight face this would be tantamount to a release from custody, which can only be considered in the framework of a formal bail application. In order to appear in court, Assange was reportedly strip-searched twice, handcuffed a total of 11 times, and locked up in five different holding cells, all in a single day. Moreover, the prison management seized all his court documents, including confidential materials from his lawyers, 
thus depriving him of his last means of defense. When Assange's defense counsel protested in court that these obstructive conditions severely jeopardized due, due process, the arbitrariness had become so blatant that even pr the prosecution counsel, James Lewis, stood up to assert that he wanted Assange to have a fair trial, that he was not convinced a bail application was required to allow Assange to sit with his legal counsel, and that it would be standard practice for the judge to intervene with the prison authorities in order to ensure due process. But Baratzer was not swayed. She insisted that she had no jurisdiction over the prison authorities and refused to allow Assange to leave his glass box. After all, she said, in all earnest, he might pose a danger to the public. It was a question of health and safety. Overall, it appeared that, to judge Baratzer, Assange's presence was a nuisance at best, and a welcome opportunity to intimidate and humiliate him at worst. Either way, given the political importance of the case, it seemed inconceivable that she would have so openly disregarded due process without instruction, consent, or acquiescence from above. The unfolding travesty of justice later prompted the International Bar Association's Human Rights Institute, Ibari, to issue an unusually harsh press release. Ibari condemns the reported mistreatment of Julian Assange during his United States extradition trial in February 2020 and urges the government of the United Kingdom to take action to protect him. It is deeply shocking that as a mature democracy in which the rule of law and the rights of individuals are preserved, the UK government has been silent and has taken no action to terminate such gross and disproportionate conduct by Crown officials. As well, we are surprised that the presiding judge has reportedly said and done nothing to rebuke the officials and their superiors <coughs> Excuse me. for such conducts in the case of the accused whose offense is not one of personal violence. Many countries in the world look to Britain as an example in such matters. On this occasion, the example is shocking and excessive. The press release concluded with the reference to my official statement in the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva, February 28th of 2020, when I had presented my annual report explicitly citing Assange's years of cruel, inhuman, and degrading treatment by the United Kingdom, Sweden, Ecuador, and the United States as a concrete example of psychological torture. During the next four days, the prosecution and defense delivered their opening arguments. Assange's barristers submitted various bundles of evidence aiming to disprove the facts alleged by their prosecution and delivered legal arguments both orally and in writing. In essence, their reasoning against Assange's extradition to the United States can be summarized in four principal arguments. <clears throat> First, Counsel argued that the decision to prosecute Assange was politically motivated, and that 17 of the 18 counts of the U.S. indictment concerned espionage, which is a classic textbook example of a political offense. Given the Anglo-American Extradition Treaty expressly exhibits, pro sorry, expressly prohibits extraditions for polit political offenses, Assange could not lawfully be surrendered to the United States. Second. During his asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy, Assange had been systematically surveilled 
and notably his confidential conversations with his lawyers were recorded by agents cooperating with the U.S. intelligence services. This constituted as such a serious abuse of process that it rendered the entire extradition proceeding irreparably arbitrary. Third, no person could be lawfully extradited to a state when such extradition would have to be regarded as oppressive. If extradited to the United States, there was a real risk that Assange would be exposed to a flagrant denial of justice, both at trial and at the sentencing stage, that he could receive a grossly excessive sentence of up to 175 years in prison, and that he would be subjected to cruel, inhuman, and degrading detention conditions, all of which set an insurmountable bar against his extradition. Fourth. Based on the requirement of dual criminality, Assange's extradition to the United States can be permissible only in the offense for which his extradition is sought is punishable in both the U.S. and the U.K. <clears throat> this raised the question of whether the activity Assange is accused of, namely unauthorized obtaining, receiving, and disclosure of national defense information, can constitute a criminal offense at all particularly in view of the public interest in having that information disclosed, and of the protection of the freedom of expression under both international and domestic law. For the prosecution, James Lewis began by focusing strongly on distinguishing Assange's alleged offenses from the journalistic work protected by the freedom of expression and stressing that Assange's prosecution did not create any precedents for the criminalization of mainstream journalism. Lewis emphasized that Assange was not being prosecuted for responsible journalism but for endangering the lives of informants by publishing their unredacted names, for conspiring with Chelsea Manning to attempt to com computer intrusion, and for causing her to unlawfully provide him with the national defense information. <clears throat> According to observers, during this initial segment of his argument, Lewis did not address the judge, but primarily spoke to the media representatives. At one point, he even repeated a sentence, explaining that it was important to make sure the journalist had understood his point. The prosecution had even prepared handouts for the journalist and printed an electronic form, which had facilitated cut-and-paste reporting in line with the U.S. positions. As Lewis was undoubtedly, or sorry, doubtlessly aware, Journalists, too, are human and therefore tend to choose the path of least resistance. Apart from that, the fact that Lewis did not appear to find it necessary to convince the judge of his arguments suggests that the United States was not worried about the position of the British judiciary, but was primarily concerned with avoiding negative headlines by reassuring and appeasing the mainstream press. By and large, the established media seemed to take the bait and obediently reported on the superficial he said, she said, played out in court, rather than decrying the disembowelment of justice and the rule of law occurring right there in front of their eyes. None of WikiLeaks' former media partners involved in publishing the sensational leaks of 2010 and 2011 had the courage to protest the blatant arbitrariness with which Assange was being hounded and abused for the sins they had committed together with him. Even the venerable BBC, once the mouthpiece of a free world, took the easy way out and made sure to miss the forest for the trees. Lewis subsequently went 
to great lengths to demonstrate that, in line with the requirement of dual criminality, each of the actions taken by Assange would be punishable not only under the U.S. Espionage Act, but also under the British Officials' Secrets Act, an equally archaic piece of legislation criminalizing the possession and disclosure of official secrets without giving the accused the right to raise a public interest defense. <clears throat> the prosecution also tried to deny that, if punishable at all, Assange's publications could constitute a political offense barred from being grounds for extradition. Lewis offered two rather far-fetched reasons for this conclusion. First, WikiLeaks lacked a political motivation because the organization did not seek to overthrow the U.S. government or to persuade it to change its policies. Second, Assange was not physically present in the United States when he published the Afghan War Diary, the Iraq War Logs, and Cablegate. Both arguments were unconvincing to say the least, leaving aside the plainly absurd issue of government overthrow, any interview with Assange would have provided ample evidence for his political motivation as an activist promoting policy change towards achieving peace, truth, and transparency. Moreover, from a legal perspective, there is absolutely no reason why the extraterritoriality of Assange's activities should prevent their characterization as political, particularly given that the United States claims extraterritorial criminal jurisdiction over the exact same activities. Apparently growing concerned over the weakness of the prosecution's reasoning, Judge Moratzer at the end of the second day hastened to equip Lewis with an alternative argument, which he gratefully adopted. According to the judge, <clears throat> while the Anglo-American Extradition Treaty, ratified in 2007, indeed prohibited extradition for political offenses, the British Extradition Act of 2003, based on which the Anglo-American Treaty had been concluded, did not. In a fit of judicial acrobatics reminiscent of the British Supreme Court's decision on the Swedish extradition request of 2012, albeit inverting its contortionist logic, Beretzer then argued that the British courts could not apply the Anglo-American Treaty because it was an international agreement and not part of English domestic law. In deciding on the U.S. extradition request for Assange, the British judiciary should, could therefore only rely on the British Extradition Act, which did not contain a political offense exclusion. It was almost surreal, whereas the Supreme Court ruled in 2012 that the British Extradition Act must necessarily be interpreted in line with the U.K.'s international obligations under the EU framework decision, and then freely invented an interpretation that was neither required nor proposed by that instrument, but Judge Moraitzer are now found, the same Extradition Act could, know, could under no circumstances be interpreted in line with the UK's international obligations under the Anglo-American Extradition Treaty, which expressly prohibits extraditions for political offenses. As a matter of jurisdictional logic, both decisions are equally unsustainable and seem to unscrupulously instrumentalize judicial power for the achievement of a desired political outcome. Accurately understood, the British Extradition Act is simply an, an enabling act which authorizes the British government to conclude extradition treaties with other states in accordance with the long-standing principle, no treaty, 
No extradition. Cannot serve as a direct basis for individual extradition requests. While bilateral or multilateral treaties may not be more permissive than enabling act on which they are based, for example, interpreting the term judicial authority more expansively, they can be more restrictive and, for example, contain political offenses exclusion. Therefore, the British Extradition Act clearly restricted the interpretation of the term judicial authority in the EU framework decision on which the Swedish request of 2010 was based, while the implementation of the Extradition Act is just as clearly restricted by the political offense exclusion Article 4 of the Anglo-American Treaty, on which the U.S. extradition request is based. In fact, if the Anglo-American Treaty could not be applied by the British courts, as asserted by Judge Verazer, then the U.S. extradition request itself would lack valid legal basis and would have to be dismissed without further consideration. No treaty, no extradition. After four days of opening arguments, the evidential hearing was initially adjourned until 18 May 2020. Shortly thereafter, the COVID-19 pandemic hit Europe and required a second adjournment until 7 September 2020. Pandemic and second superseding indictment. In May 2020, only the United States registers more deaths from COVID-19 than the United Kingdom. After many years of government-enforced austerity, the resulting depletion of the British public health care system comes back to bite. Clinics and institutions lack everything, protective gowns, masks, gloves, corona tests. Thousands of patients lose their lives and even healthcare workers are paying the ultimate price. Among the most vulnerable groups, along with the elderly, are those with pre-existing respiratory health conditions. The risk of contracting COVID-19 also increases wherever social distancing rules cannot be observed and adequate medical care is not guaranteed. Thus, shelters, migrant reception centers, and prisons become places of high risk. On 26 June 2020, International Torture Victims Day, the Doctors for Assange group launched their second public appeal in the medical journal, The Lancet. Mr. Assange is at grave risk from contracting COVID-19 as he is nonviolent, being held on remand, and arbitrarily detained according to the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention. He meets inter internationally recommended criteria for prisoner release during COVID-19. A bail application with a plan for monitored home detention was refused. However, and Mr. Assange is held in solitary confinement for 23 hours each day. Stella Morris, Assange's partner and mother of their two young sons, later confirms that in case of temporary release, Assange would have been accommodated with her and the children, but her hopes are dashed. With the onset of the pandemic, the prison goes into lockdown and prohibits all external visits, reducing Assange's contact with the outside world to short, strictly regulated, and monitored phone calls. The lockdown restrictions also pose a major problem for Assange's legal team, as the ban on personal visits severely jeopardizes their ability to prepare the extensive evidential hearing scheduled to begin on 7 September of 2020. To make matters worse without prior notice, the U.S. Department of Justice publishes a second superseding indictment on 24 June of 2020. This supersedes the previous superseding indictment 
of 23 May of 2019, which, in turn, had been superseded the original indictment of 6 March of 2018. While the 18 counts of May 2019 remain unchanged, the underlying description of facts has once more significantly expanded. From a mere 6 pages in 2018 to 37 pages in 2019, now to a total of 48 pages. The factual allegations of the 2020 indictment no longer focus primarily on the reception and publication of leaked material and thus on genuinely journalistic activities. Instead, they describe in detail Assange's alleged contact with certain hacker groups, which he is accused to have incited to steal and delivered classified information. Strikingly, most of these contacts are alleged to have taken place after 2010 and therefore cannot possibly be related to the Manning leaks upon which all 18 counts of the indictment are based. From a prosecutorial perspective, the inclusion of these allegations only makes sense if the United States intends, at a convenient time in the future, to further expand the charges against Assange. The likely aim would be to add a greater number of computer crimes and related conspiracy and incitement charges that are not protected by press freedom. After a U.S. federal judge dismissed the Democratic Party's lawsuit against Assange and others over the DNC leaks in July of 2019 based on press freedom, it would not be surprising if the government sought to expand its own indictment against Assange to activities lying outside the protective scope of the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Moreover, the new hacking allegations probably also aim to appease the press and influence the public opinion by portraying Assange as a sleazy hacktivist who has nothing in common with real journalism. One year later, in an interview given to the Icelandic newspaper Stunden in June of 2021, a key resource for the new allegations will retract their veracity. Named teenager in the 2020 indictment, the witness is a diagnosed sociopath with criminal convictions for numerous instances of fraud, forgery, theft, and sexual abuse of minors. He admits to having fabricated false allegations against Assange for the 2020 indictment in return for a generalized non-prosecution agreement for himself with the FBI and the U.S. Department of Justice. Revealingly, although the story has been meticulously researched and consolidated with reliable evidence, it is not picked up by any of the mainstream media in the United States, the United Kingdom, or Australia. But for the time being, we are still in late June 2020, one year before the teenager's admission of false testimony. The timing of the submission of the second superseding indictment can only be described as deliberately obstructive. Initially, it is published exclusively on the official website of the U.S. Department of Justice. Although it is an absolutely fundamental legal document for the extradition proceeding, the new indictment is transmitted to the British authorities only a full month later on 29 July 2020. By then, the evidential hearing is a mere five weeks away, and the deadline set for Assange's defense team to submit evidence for these hearings has passed one week earlier. 
The United States' new extradition request that must be drafted based on the new indictment arrives another two weeks later on August 12th. Finally, on 21 August, the United States transmits an addendum clarifying that, in considering the extradition request, the British court should also take into account the facts newly asserted in the second superseding indictment. As expected, Assange's lawyers object and point out that this new and untimely submission deprives them of any fair possibility to adequately prepare for the evidential hearing. When the judge offers to adjourn the case for several months, Assange's lawyers initially declined because it would have been unfair to keep him in prison for several additional months while his health continues to deteriorate due to the extremely restrictive detention, detention conditions. Instead, they request that new factual allegations submitted by the U.S. government should be excluded from the court's deliberations because the deadline for the completion of the U.S. extradition request had passed more than a year prior to the submission of the new indictment. But Judge Baratzer seems to have found a more convenient solution. She does not exclude the new factual allegations of the United States as a late submission related to the original extradition request, but appears to treat them as the basis for a separate, entirely new extradition request. Accordingly, when the evidential hearings begin on 7th September of 2020, she writes off the 2019 extradition warrant, releases Assange, and immediately re-arrests him based on the new 2020 extradition warrant. Inexplicably, however, Baratzer nevertheless insists on the procedural deadlines set in relation to the previous extradition request and, therefore, does not allow Assange's defense lawyers to submit any evidence whatsoever in response to the new factual allegations made in the new U.S. indictment. Faced with the absurd situation of being prevented by the judge herself from fulfilling their function as defense attorneys, Sanja's lawyers now have no other choice but to request the adjournment of the case until January 2021 that had been there previously proposed by the judge. To their surprise, however, Baratzer has now changed her mind. No adjournment. The show trial continues. And so the show trial pursues its course. This time the hearings take place in central London, in the central criminal court known as the Old Bailey, near St. Paul's. Even here, however, Judge Baratzer succeeds in almost completely excluding the public from her courtroom. The social distancing rules of the COVID-19 pandemic now serve as a welcome excuse to admit only five persons into the public gallery. Once admitted, however, the social distancing rules no longer apply. All five observers are seated perilously close together in one row of seats, whereas two additional rows of seats remain empty. Three additional seats are reserved for representatives of the Australian diplomatic representation in London, the Australian High Commission. They remain vacant throughout the entire hearing. It seems the Australian diplomats have more important things to do than follow the fate of their national. Just as in February in Belmarsh, journalists, NGOs, and other observers are asked to follow the proceedings in an adjoining room via video transmission. Just as in February in Belmarsh, the quality of sound and image is appalling. 
and just as in February in Belmarsh, this is not happening in a technologically backward province of a developing country, but in the heart of the British capital. By now, Judge Verrazer no longer even pretends that she is interested in public scrutiny. On the very first day of the hearing, she unceremoniously revokes the video link, access granted to some 40 officially registered trial observers from European Parliament and human rights organizations such as Amnesty International and Reporters Without Borders. According to Baratzer, in this case, such remote access is not, quote-unquote, in the interest of justice. Both the European parliamentarians and Amnesty International repeatedly intervene with the judge in the following days, reminding her that independent trial observation is an essential prerequisite of the rule of law. However, Baratzer declines to reconsider. The fact that in terms of procedural transparency, the British judiciary now officially falls behind Guantanamo, Bahrain, and Turkey, where Amnesty International has been admitted to observe trials, does not seem to bother the judge at all. During the hearing, several dozen defense witnesses are set to testify, both in court and remotely. Unsurprisingly, the video and audio connection of those testifying remotely is disastrous. The video image fails repeatedly, audio files are not played back properly, and the timeline increasingly veers out of control. Despite strong objections from the defense team, Baratzer decides that witness statements that have already been submitted to the court in writing are not to be repeated in the oral hearing. This requires journalists and other observers wishing to understand and publicly report on the relevant evidence to separately research the written submissions beforehand. For most of them, predictably, this is a bridge too far. Having thus reduced the risk of effective public scrutiny to almost zero, Judge Baratzer now starts moving the goalpost regarding the evidence itself. First, she rules that the defense witnesses may be cross-examined by the prosecution at length, while prosecution witnesses who are employed by the U.S. government may not be cross-examined by the defense attorneys at all. Second, in response to a U.S. government request, she obediently declares the famous collateral murder video and any other evidence detailing U.S. war crimes and torture as inadmissible. Third, while the judge cannot reasonably disallow the testimony of the German-Lebanese torture victim Khalid al-Mazri, which the U.S. government has vehemently tried to prevent, his statement is made technically impossible, supposedly by an unfortunate breakdown of the video connection. However, unlike other witnesses who had experienced comparable technical difficulties, al-Mazri is not given the opportunity to testify on a later date. Even though it is true that this proceeding is not about prosecuting war crimes, the reality of these crimes and the total impunity granted to the perpetrators and their superiors are important factual circumstances explaining not only Assange's motivation for their publication, but also the reasons for his relentless persecution by the United States. Next, Baratzer decides to prevent any personal participation of Assange in the hearing presumably because his voice and statements might have reminded the few souls left in the courtroom of his humanity and desperation. So, the judge once again keeps him locked away 
behind bulletproof glass far from his lawyers. She also reiterates her gag order for Assange, insisting that he may not speak in person, but may only participate in the proceedings through his lawyers. When on one occasion Assange cannot help but exclaim, NONSENSE, in a response to a statement made by the prosecutor, Baratzer immediately threatens to have him removed from the courtroom if he should dare open his mouth again. Just as in dictatorial show trial, the choreography of this proceeding seems predetermined and must be strictly observed. Any human emotion, inconvenient truth, or other unforeseen factor that could alter the outcome must be immediately suppressed. Nevertheless, to those who know him, Assange's agony and exhaustion are perceptible even through the bulletproof walls of his cage. Each day of the hearing, early in the morning, he is strip-searched, x-rayed, handcuffed, and moved to a holding cell before being shipped to court, standing upright in a claustrophobically narrow prison transport van for 90 minutes in each direction. As a professor of law at a British university, I have been profoundly shocked in a politically prominent case like this to see the British judiciary dehumanize a defendant, refuse to admit evidence of central importance to the defense, disregard fundamental principles of due process, and almost completely exclude the public from the courtroom. This fact that this travesty of justice did not prompt the entire defense team to leave the courtroom in protest, that it did not trigger a public outcry in the established media, and that the political leadership seemed to be content with Assange undergoing a show trial, more redolent of an authoritarian regime than a mature democracy, shows how far British society has already become desensitized to the formal requirements and practical importance of the rule of law. The Evidential Hearing In the course of the evidential hearing, which lasted from 7 September to 1 October 2020, it became devastatingly clear why Judge Baratzer had done everything to exclude the public from her courtroom and suppress any form of effective scrutiny by the media, civil society, and international observers. Every day, one by one, witness testimonies and expert reports systematically dismantle the legal and factual building blocks of the entire U.S. case against Assange, leaving nothing but the plain proof of a ruthless political persecution. Much of the factual and legal evidence brought during the hearing has already been discussed elsewhere in this book and will not be repeated here. Nevertheless, to enable full appreciation of the flagrancy with which the rule of law is being violated in this case, it is nevertheless important to provide an overview of the most important topics and how they were addressed in context. The most decisive issue discussed during the evidential hearing was without doubt Assange's physical and mental health. Numerous witnesses commented on this question, including Dr. Sandra Crosby, who had been examined who had examined Assange five times, both at the Ecuadorian Embassy and at Belmarsh, and whose medical report to the Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights had contributed decisively to triggering my own involvement with the case. Another important witness was Professor Michael Kopelman, an experienced psychiatrist who had visited Assange a total of 19 times at Belmarsh and had traced his medical history back to his youth in Australia. Kopelman warned of severe depression, post-traumatic 
stress disorder PTSD anxiety disorder and traits of autism spectrum disorder ASD resulting in acute suicidal tendencies quote I am as certain as a psychiatrist ever can be that in the event of imminent extradition Mr. Assange would indeed find a way to commit suicide end quote other, expert, uh, other experts also diagnosed him with depression and Asperger's. The overall picture was that of a person who, despite remarkable resilience, had suffered massively from years of persecution and isolation, and who was determined to avoid extradition through suicide. In responding for the prosecution, James Lewis tried to downplay concerns over Assange's state of health and to undermine the credibility of witnesses and evidence. He also repeatedly insinuated that Assange was malingering or exaggerating his symptoms in order to induce diagnosis that would help him avoid extradition, but was unable to provide any evidence supporting these claims. Lewis then turned his attention to my own official letter to the British government of 27 May of 2019, which he knew could not reasonably be omitted from the record of the hearing. He did so conveniently while cross-examining medical doctors as witnesses for the defense, who were not human rights experts competent to examine the accuracy of my legal findings. Without any explanation as to my mandate and function, Lewis read out several pages of my letter in court, predominantly non-medical passages relating to due process violations and persecutorial collusion between the involved states. In doing so, he made sure to impress on the mind of the witnesses his unreserved indignation at my unflattering observations. Lewis then tried to manipulate the medical experts into agreeing that my legal and factual findings were, quote, neither balanced nor accurate, and not, quote unquote, worthy of resilient or worthy of reliance in any part. The witnesses realized, of course, that as medical doctors they could not be expected to judge the accuracy of my legal conclusions and prudently limited themselves to concurring with the medical findings of the two doctors who had accompanied my visit to Belmarsh. When he did not succeed in getting the medical experts to discredit my legal findings, Lewis skillfully tricked them into referring to the non-medical passages of my letter as political rather than legal by simply putting the desired word into their mouths. Sensing the danger, but missing the fine print, the doctors wisely declined to give a substantive opinion on the political passages. In reality, of course, official communications transmitted by UN human rights experts are of an exclusively legal, never political nature, and therefore are directly relevant for the legal determinations to be made in court. By characterizing my findings as political, the prosecution sought to dismiss their relevance for the legal questions put before the court, and Judge Baratzer gratefully played along. Lewis concluded the matter by summarily dismissing my observations as obvious, palatable nonsense, conveniently in my absence, without risking that I might substantiate my unwelcome findings under cross-examination. Judge Baratzer apparently found no fault in Lewis's manipulative and plainly offensive dismissal of the official findings submitted by a UN Special Rapporteur 
based on a prison visit and medical examination conducted upon invitation of the British government. Moving on to a topic, several experts confirmed that Assange's fear of disappearing into a U.S. supermax prison for the rest of his life was by no means irrational. Even the prosecution witnesses acknowledged that the real risk, if extradited to the United States, Assange would be held under Special Administrative Measures, or SAMs, during both pretrial detention and while serving his sentence. In effect, that meant total isolation from any interpersonal contact. Strikingly, the discussion in court on SAMs focused primarily on whether, in view of Assange's state of health, these conditions of detention should necessarily or only possibly have been have to be considered as oppressive and thus as violating the prohibition of torture and ill treatment the prosecution agreed that it could not be predicted with certainty whether Assange would indeed be subjected to SAMS moreover even if SAMS were imposed they would be periodically reviewed by the Attorney General with a view to their possible mitigation or termination Therefore, should Assange's extradition be granted, neither the hu risk of human treatment—neither the risk of inhuman treatment nor the likelihood of suicide could be reliably predicted. It was a feeble attempt to undermine overwhelming evidence that the detention regime awaiting Assange in the United States was utterly incompatible with the absolute and universal prohibition of torture and other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. Particularly shocking revelation was the extreme intrusiveness of Assange's surveillance inside the Ecuadorian embassy as well as the fact that the Spanish security company UC Global, which had been contracted to guard the embassy, had worked for a U.S. intelligence agency behind the back of its primary client, the Ecuadorian government. As became apparent, UC Global's cooperation with U.S. intelligence included not only the systematic audio and video surveillance of Assange's confidential meetings with lawyers, doctors, and private visitors, but went much further. Written witness statements by former UC Global employees confirmed, among other things, that the plans had been drawn up to leave the embassy doors open so that agents from the outside could either kidnap, enter, or poison Assange. While Lewis dismissed these testimonies too as completely irrelevant, their legal significance for the extradition proceeding cannot be overstated, apart from the obvious criminality of any plan to kidnap or murder Assange. His secret surveillance at the the behest of the U.S. government constitutes such grave violation of due process principles, attorney-client confidentiality, doctor-patient confidentiality, and personal privacy that the entire case affected by it, including both the U.S. prosecution and the related extradition request, can only be dismissed as irreparably arbitrary. A central argument of Assange's defense team against his extradition and prosecution for his publishing activities remain his right to freedom of expression and freedom of the press. Trevor Tim, defense witness and executive director for, of the Freedom of the Press Foundation, 
pointed to the Watergate scandal. At the time, in the early 1970s, the corruption within the Nixon administration was only exposed because of investigative journalists Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post could pursue their work without fearing that their revelations would be prosecuted as espionage. Another witness, the attorney and activist Carrie Schenkman, emphasized the frequency with which classified material is being deliberately leaked by U.S. government agencies themselves in order to influence public opinion. Needless to say, none of these leaks ev ever resulted in criminal prosecution. Even Daniel Ellsberg, by now almost 90 years old, gave testimony. Famously charged with espionage for blowing the whistle in the 1971 Pentagon Papers case, Ellsberg insisted that the WikiLeaks publication were protected under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. This followed from the U.S. Supreme Court's landmark ruling in the Pentagon Papers case, which had reaffirmed and strengthened press freedom and the public's right to know. As a matter of logic, if Assange could be charged with espionage for publishing classified documents, then the same had to apply with WikiLeaks media partners. First and foremost, the New York Times, The Guardian, Der Spiegel, El País, and Le Monde. This, but this would be a frontal attack on press freedom and the precedent set by the Supreme Court in 1971. This dilemma, the so-called New York Times problem, was what had persuaded the Obama administration not to prosecute Assange. Addressing the related allegations that Assange had conspired with Chelsea Manning to violate her duty of non-disclosure, numerous defense witnesses confirmed that it is part and parcel of any investigative journalist's daily routine to solicit sources and encourage them to share evidence, even if the information is classified as secret. Journalists also have a duty to make active source protection measures that make the identification of whistleblowers more difficult or even impossible. Adopting the same position as U.S. Federal Judge Kettle and his 2019 dismissal of the DNC lawsuit against Assange and others, they argue that the line towards criminality is only crossed once journalists themselves participate in the act of data theft. For example, by illegally penetrating a protected computer system in order to obtain secret information. But that is not what Assange is accused of. His source, Chelsea Manning, already had full access to the leaked information. Instead, Assange was alleged to have tried unsuccessfully to help Manning crack a password hash that would have allowed her to log into the same system under a different identity and thus to cover her tracks within that system. This was a typical source protection measure and could not be regarded as aiding and abetting or incitement of a computer crime. There was, therefore, no legal or factual basis for the U.S. conspiracy charges brought against Assange. Importantly, it was made clear that the right to freedom of opinion and expression is not restricted to journalists but applies to anyone so that the eternal discussion as to whether or not Assange can be regarded as a proper journalist has never had any legal, real legal relevance. Jurisdictionally unsustainable, too, is the argument made by the Trump administration that Assange, having acted as a foreigner abroad, is not entitled to constitutional freedom of expression protections, but that he can nevertheless be prosecuted under U.S. Espionage Act 
for the same conduct. If nothing else, this demonstrates that in the event of his extradition to the United States, Assange would not be guaranteed effective human rights protection. Numerous witnesses also refuted allegations that Assange had knowingly endangered human lives by publishing the unredacted names of local informants and collaborators of the United States, therefore, thereby, exposing them to acts of revenge. Although to this day the U.S. government has not, has not succeeded in producing any reliable evidence to that effect, the put-lives-at-risk narratives is one of the oldest, most die-hard myths surrounding the WikiLeaks publications. Already at the trial of Chelsea Manning in 2013, the U.S. Department of Defense explicitly acknowledged that it had no concrete example of any individual having suffered harm or being exposed to a serious threat as a consequence of the WikiLeaks publications. Seven years on at the evidential hearing in London in September 2020, nothing had changed. On the other hand, numerous journalists and other witnesses expressly confirmed that Assange had handled sensitive data responsibly. For example, John Sloboda of the Iraq Body Count Project and former Spiegel journalist John Goetz had both been involved in the publication of the Iraq War Logs in 2010. They, now they recall the irritation of WikiLeaks established media partners when Assange insisted that Iraqi names be filtered out of the documents and redacted before publication. Australian journalist Nikki Hager then formally made the point that it was not Assange but two Guardian journalists who had been first made the unredacted Cablegate documents accessible to the public. The story is well known. In their book, WikiLeaks Inside Julian Assange's War on Secrecy, published in February 2011, Luke Harding and David Lee of The Guardian revealed the password that Assange had confidentially shared with his media partners, enabling them to access and work on the unredacted material, which had been stored in a single backup file at various locations on the Internet. Another journalist at the German weekly, Dear Freetag, had detected the location of the file and with the password published by Lee and Harding, was able to access and download a full copy of the original unredacted material. Instead of keeping this information confidential, De Freetag published the scoop in late 2011, providing sufficient information to make the unredacted cable gate file accessible to any interested party. De Freetag's editor-in-chief, Jacob Augustine, also, a defense witness confirmed that Assange had personally urged him not to go public with this information and had expressed concern that individuals named in the unredacted documents might be exposed to harm. A full audio recording of the phone conversation between Assange and his contacts at the U.S. State Department, which circulates on the Internet, proved that Assange immediately informed the U.S. government of the security leak and recommended urgent harm reduction measures for the protection of individuals that might be put at risk, a far cry from the image of the reckless narcissist with blood on his hands that had been fed to the public. The objective chronology of the unredacted Cablegate publication was scientifically reconstructed by expert witness Christian Grotoff professor of computer science in Switzerland. His meticulous report provides irrefutable technical evidence that Assange had published the original unredacted material only after it had 
already been made publicly available against his will by Lee and Harding in, conju in conjunction with Der Freetag. This demonstrated that WikiLeaks was not the original publisher, but only the republisher of the unredacted Cablegate file, and that the responsibility for any harm or threat resulting from its unredacted publication could not be attributed to Assange. The fact that neither the two Guardian journalists nor Der Freetag were ever held accountable for their conduct is a clear indication that the put lives at risk narrative was deliberately misused as just another tool to demonize Assange and to divert attention from the inconvenient content of the leaked documents. The Screaming Silence of the Press The strong support and solidarity that Assange has received from journalists testifying in court stands in stark contrast to the pervasive media silence outside the courtroom. By media silence, I do not mean to say that nothing has been reported about Assange and his case, but that what has been reported has been largely irrelevant or missing the point. Interesting, interestingly, the German language press became the first mainstream media to have a change of heart. Starting in 2019, papers such as I'm gonna get. I'm gonna do my best. Süddeutsche Zeitung, as well as the Swiss Swiss Wochen, oh God, Wochen Zeitung and Sonntagsblick, sorry, Sonntagsblick, prepared the ground. On 31 January 2020, my interview with the Swiss online paper Republic appeared. A first important breakthrough, just in time for the beginning of the Assange extradition hearing three weeks later. It shocked with a concise summary of my investigative conclusions and with a few pieces of leaked correspondence illustrating the deliberate abuse of process against Assange, supported by the relentless advocacy of countless activists, personalities, and organizations, a slow but steady change in public opinion was set in motion and kept gaining momentum. German public broadcasters now reported not only on the latest developments in the extradition hearings, but increasingly also featured critical interviews, investigative documentaries, and in-depth analysis. In contrast to the gleeful malice which permeated media commentary following Assange's arrest in April 2019, journalists now started to express genuine concern about the implications of this case for press freedom and for the rule of law. Water. Thus in September 2020, the Sidoj Zeitung wrote, In London, the United States war on whistleblowers and their supporters is about to reach its climax so far. A war which will re-examine the limits of press freedom. This case will determine, among other things, what journalists will still be able to publish in the future without fear of being prosecuted in the United States. Slowly but surely, journalists began to understand that the trial of Julian Assange was not as much about Assange as it is about them. At number 10 Downing Street, the organization Reporters Without Borders attempted to hand over a petition with 80,000 signatures calling on the British government not to extradite Assange, but the authorities refused to receive the petition. 
The established press in the United States, the UK, and Australia, on the other hand, still does not seem to have understood the exist existential danger posed by the trial of Julian Assange to press freedom, due process, democracy, and the rule of law. The painful truth is that if only the media organizations of the Anglosphere so decided Assange's persecution could be ended tomorrow. The case of Ivan Golunov, Russian investigative journalist specialized in exposing official corruption, may serve as a textbook example. When Golunov was suddenly arrested for an alleged drug offense in the summer of 2019, the Russian mainstream press immediately saw through the game. We are Ivan Golunov, read the identical front pages of Russia's three leading dailies, Vedumosti, RBC, and Kommersant. All three papers openly questioned the legality of Golunov's arrest, suspected that he was being persecuted for his journalistic activities, and demanded a thorough investigation. Caught in the act and exposed by the spotlight of their own mass media, the Russian authorities backpedaled a few days later. President Putin made a point of personally ordering Golunov's release and dismissing two high-ranking interior ministry officials. If nothing else, this had proved that Golunov's arrest had not been the result of misconduct on the part of a few incompetent police officers, but had been orchestrated at the highest level. Without a doubt, a comparable joint action of solidarity by The Guardian, the BBC, the New York Times, and the Washington Post would put an immediate end to the persecution of Julian Assange. For if there is one thing governments fear, it is the unforgiving spotlight of the mass media and their critical scrutiny. But what is happening in the British, American, and Australian mainstream media is simply too little too late. As ever, their reporting continues to oscillate between tame and lame, obediently journaling the daily events in court without even grasping that what they were witnessing are the side effects of a monumental societal regression from the achievements of, of democracy and the rule of law back into the dark ages of absolutism and the arcana imperi, a governance system based on secrecy and authoritarianism. A handful of half-hearted opinion pieces in The Guardian and The New York Times rejecting Assange's extradition are not bold enough, and so fail to convince. While both papers have timidly declared that convicting Assange of espionage would endanger press freedom, not a single mainstream media outlet protests the blatant violations of due process, human dignity, and the rule of law that pervade the entire trial. No one, none, holds the involved governments to account for their crimes and corruption. None has the courage to confront political leaders with uncomfortable questions. None feels duty-bound to inform and empower the people, a mere shadow of what once was the fourth estate. My last appeals. In the weeks that followed until the end of November 2020, the prosecution and defense submitted their written closing statements. Assange remained isolated in Belmarsh Prison. The 7th of December 2020 marked the 10th anniversary of Assange's first arrest by British police. On that day, I sent an urgent appeal to the British government, which was published the next morning. UN expert calls for immediate release of Assange after 10 years of arbitrary detention. 
In the meantime, the COVID-19 pandemic had broken out in Belmarsh, for Assange has posed an acute threat, as he suffered from a chronic respiratory disease and his resistance had been weakened for years. Quote, Mr. Assange is not a criminal convict and poses no threat to anyone, so his prolonged solitary confinement in a high-security prison is neither necessary nor proportionate and clearly lacks any legal basis, I wrote, clarifying that this detention regime, in view of its long duration, also violates the prohibition of torture and ill-treatment. I therefore called on the British government to immediately release Assange or place him under guarded house arrest, where he could lead a normal family, social, and professional life, recover his health, and prepare his defense in the U.S. extradition proceedings. I concluded with an urgent appeal to the, to the British authorities not to extradite Assange under the U. <sighs> not to extradite Assange to the U.S. under any circumstances due to serious human rights concerns. Once more, the British government did not find it necessary or appropriate to respond. By contrast, a group of 15 members of the British Parliament, led by Richard Burgeon and Jeremy Corbyn, granted me an online hearing on the Assange case on the evening of 8 December 2020. Based on my conclusions that Assange's human rights were being violated by the British authorities, the lawmakers sent a concerned letter to Secretary of State for Justice Robert Buckland on 16 December requesting that provision be made to hold an online video discussion between Julian Assange and a cross-party group of UK parliamentarians before the judicial decision on his extradition was made. The declared purpose of the meeting was to discuss with him his treatment and the wider implication of his case. But once again, the executive branch demonstrated its disdain for Parliament. Six months later, in June 2021, Burgeon wrote another letter to the Governor of Belmarsh and Secretary Buckland expressing strong frustration at the ongoing refusal of you and the Justice Secretary to allow an online video meeting between Julian Assange and a cross-party group of British parliamentarians. It is simply unacceptable that six months on this simple request continues to be met with such intransigence. You have the authority to grant such a meeting and we call on you to facilitate an online meeting without further delay. But for now, we are still in December 2020 and Judge Verazer has announced her decision on Assange's extradition to the United States for 4 January 2021. I assume that the date was set so late in order to allow British authorities to wait for the outcome of the U.S. presidential election on 3rd November 2020 and then tailor the extradition decision to the wishes of the winner. I was under no illusions about the prevailing power political context. After all, following the completion of Brexit, the British exit from the European Union, by the end of the year, the United Kingdom would become a completely dependent on its special relationship with the United States and could not afford any disagreements on any issue of foreign policy. As noted by Alan Duncan, then British Minister of State for Europe and the Americas on 8th April of 2019, three days before Assange's arrest, everything we believe in is ultimately subordinated to our not wanting to clash with the U.S. 
accordingly with the victory of Joe Biden over Donald Trump, the British government needed time to find out what Biden's position would be on the extradition of Assange after his inauguration on 20 January 2021. But first, with the impending departure of Donald Trump, another possibility came into play, the presidential pardon. The U.S. Constitution gives the president the power to grant a federal pardon to defendants or convicts or to shorten or commute a sentence, whether threatened or imposed. This prerogative can be exercised throughout the term of the office, but pardons are traditionally, traditionally concentrated in the last weeks of the presidency. Beginning in the late November 2020, many celebrities began to speak out publicly, urging Trump to pardon Assange, and I decided to make my own appeal as well. I thought it was worth a try, and at the same time it would allow me to reach out to the broader American public with a message that challenged the prevailing narrative about Assange. I wrote my letter to, to President Trump on 21 December 2020, two years to the day after my own subconscious bias had led me to decline co-signing an appeal for the release of Assange together with my UN colleagues. Ironically, this time it was the other mandate holders who declined to co-sign, all of them. And so I was the only one to sign the following appeal to President Trump. Mr. President, today I respectfully request that you pardon Mr. Julian Assange. Mr. Assange has been arbitrarily deprived of his liberty for the past 10 years. This is a high price to pay for the courage to publish true information about government misconduct throughout the world. I visited Mr. Assange in Belmarsh High Security Prison in London with two independent medical doctors and I can attest to the fact that his health has seriously deteriorated to the point where his life is now in danger. Critically, Mr. Assange suffers from a documented respiratory condition which renders him extremely vulnerable to COVID-19 pandemic that has recently broke out in the prison where he's being held. I ask that you to pardon Mr. Assange because he is not and has never been an enemy of the American people. His organization, WikiLeaks, fights secrecy and corruption throughout the world and therefore acts in the public interest of both the American people and of humanity as a whole. I ask because Mr. Assange has never published false information. The cause for any reputational harm that may have resulted from his publications is not to be found in any misconduct on his part, but in the very misconduct which he is exposed. I ask because Mr. Assange has not hacked or stolen any of the information he published. He has obtained it from authentic documents and sources in the same way any serious or independent investigative journalist conduct their work. While we may personally agree or disagree with the publications, they clearly cannot be regarded as crimes. I ask because prosecuting Mr. Assange for publishing true information about a serious official misconduct, whether in America or elsewhere, would amount to shooting the messenger, rather than correcting the problem he exposed. This would be incompatible with the core values of justice, rule of law, and press freedom, as reflected in the American Constitution and international human rights instruments ratified by the United States. I ask because... You, ha you have vowed, Mr. President, to pursue an agenda of fighting government corruption and misconduct, and because allowing the prosecution of Mr. Assange to continue would mean that under your legacy, telling the truth about such corruption and misconduct has become a crime.
In pardoning Mr. Assange, Mr. President, you would send a clear message of justice and truth and humanity to the American people and to the world. You would rehabilitate a courageous man who has suffered an injustice, persecution, and humiliation for more than a decade, simply for telling the truth. Last but not least, you would give back Mr. Assange's two sons the loving father they need and looked up to. You would also reassure, reassure these children and through them all children of the world that there is nothing wrong with telling the truth but that is the right thing to do that is the honorable thing to do to fight for justice and indeed that these are the values America and the world stands for for these reasons I respectfully appeal to you to pardon Julian Assange whatever our personal views and sympathies may be I believe that after a decade of persecution this man's unjust suffering must end now Please use your power of pardon to right the wrongs inflicted on Julian Assange to end his unjust ordeal and reunite him with his family. I respectfully thank you for considering this appeal with foresight, generosity, and compassion. And finally, on Sunday, 3rd January 2021, the eve of the first instance verdict in the Anglo-American extradition trial, I published a short personal appeal to Judge Vanessa Beretzer this time on Twitter for lack of official channels. Oh, God. Tomorrow you will render a verdict on the extradition of Julian Assange. Today, from lawyer to lawyer, I would like to share with you a quote by the late Thomas Frank, which has inspired and guided me through my career as a legal professional. May Lady Justice be with you. What, then, is the proper role for the lawyer? Surely it is to stand tall for the rule of law. What this entails is self-evident. When the policymakers believe it is it to society's immediate benefit to skirt the law, the lawyer must speak of the longer-term cost. When the politicians seek to bend the law, the lawyers must insist that they have broken it. When a faction tries to use power to subvert the rule of law, the lawyer must defend it, even at some risk to personal advancement and safety. When the powerful are tempted to discard the law, the lawyer must ask whether someday if our omnipotence wanes, we may not need the law. Lawyers who do that may even be called traitors. But those who do not are traitors to their calling. Setting the precedent, the verdict of 4 January 2021. Finally, the day had come. It was 4 January, the first Monday of 2021. In Britain, the new year had started with an alarming statistic on COVID-19 pandemic, record numbers of new infections, and unprecedented numbers of deaths. Nevertheless, once again, outside the old Bailey, Assange's supporters had gathered long before sunrise to await the verdict in his extradition trial. Once again, the public was de facto excluded from the courtroom. Only a few observers had been granted access to an adjoining room from where they could follow the hearing through the video leak and keep the outside world informed through social media. Once again, they complained about poor audio quality. The problem was well known by now that the authorities clearly had no intention to have it resolved. Despite these difficulties, fragmentary messages kept trickling through. A new element every few minutes and over the course of an hour coalesced into the usual picture of unconditional British compliance with the U.S. government's interests. Step by step, even the most aberrant arguments advanced by the prosecution were unreservedly upheld. 
At the same time, almost as if in passing, Judge Verazer dismissed even the most legitimate legal objections and even the strongest exculpatory evidence raised by the defense team. The indictment and extradition request initiated by the United States not politically motivated. The prohibition of extradition for political offenses in Article 4 of the Anglo-American Extradition Treaty not applicable. Surveillance of Assange in the Ecuadorian Embassy and the wiretapping of his confidential conversations with medical doctors and lawyers not objectionable. The impact of the threat of extradition on Assange's partner and their two children, nothing unusual. The trial awaiting him at espionage court in Virginia, fair. The jury that would decide on his guilt or innocent, unbiased. Assange himself, a threat to U.S. national security. Assange's publication of evidence for war crimes, torture, and corruption not protected by press freedom. Instead, according to Baratzer, Assange had actively assisted Chelsea Manning in obtaining classified documents, thereby well overstepping the bounds of investigative journalism. Moreover, he had endangered people because their names had been not been redacted prior to publication. Therefore, Assange should not be considered a journalist, but simply a data thief and a hacker. Finally, Assange's conduct was punishable not only under the U.S. Espionage Act, but also under the British Official Secrets Act, thus meeting the extradition requirement of dual criminality. The judge completely ignored the fact that, in the course of the evidential hearing, every single allegation on which she based her argument had been proved unsustainable. The Twitter posts from the observers were sounding increasingly fatalistic. The text message sent to me by one of Assange's lawyers summed things up. It's bad. I had already given up hope and begun to focus on other things when suddenly a sentence leaped out of, at me from my computer screen, as if written in all caps. Oh my God! Over the next few minutes, media posts and messages rushed by. Snippets of words complimented and contradicted each other. Nothing seemed to make any sense. I hastily clicked from one Twitter feed to another, eventually running five separate feeds across my screen at once until finally there was clarity. Extradition denied! I couldn't believe my eyes! What had happened? For a few moments there was complete silence. It was as if a meteorite had struck, and cheers broke outside the courthouse. The first explanation started to circulate. Then soon the written verdict was published. Judge Baratzer had rejected the U.S. extradition request on medical grounds. Based on the evidence provided by the psychiatric experts on Assange's mental health and by other expert witnesses on the reality of U.S. detention conditions under the SAM's special administration measures, Baratzer found that it would be oppressive to extradite Assange to the United States. It is my judgment that there is a real risk that he will be kept in near-isolated conditions imposed by the har harshest Sam's regimes, uh, both pre-trial and post-trial. Mr. Assange undoubtedly has the determination, planning, and intelligence to circumvent suicide preventative measures. I am satisfied that in these harsh conditions, Mr. Assange's mental health would deteriorate, causing him to commit suicide with a single-minded determination of his autism spectrum disorder. I find that the mental condition of Mr. Assange is such that it would be oppressive to extradite him to the United States of America. 
I immediately had a flashback to a moment during my conversation with Assange when he told me about the razor blade that he had found in his cell two days earlier and made it equivocally clear that he would not ha be extradited to the United States alive. This determination gave a real, very real and immediate meaning to Assange's departing, appeal, uh, a party, departing appeal to me, please save my life. However, I had never spoken about this publicly until Assange's lawyers decided to openly address his suicide risk by during the evidential hearing in September 2020. In a way, the possibility of ending his own life was Assange's last resort to retain a modicum of control over his own destiny and to escape his utter dehumanization in U.S. supermax detention. I respected his human dignity too much to undermine this last refuge of his by exposing his plans. With her verdict, the judge had confirmed my own findings that, in two respects, first she acknowledged Assange's deplorable state of health, which we had diagnosed already over our visit, our visit to Belmarsh 18 months earlier, and which had further deteriorated due to the constant exposure of, to arbitrariness and isolation. What Barrister did not say, however, was that Assange's frailty was by no means his natural constitution, but a direct consequence of ten years of relentless persecution and mistreatment by Sweden, the United Kingdom, Ecuador, and the United States. Second, the judge also confirmed in the inherent humanity of the detention conditions likely to be imposed on Assange in a supermax prison. In this context, Baratser explicitly spoke of near-total isolation, cages, and extreme conditions. In doing so, the judge also acknowledged, at least implicitly, that Assange's permanent fear of extradition to the United States, his asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy, and his refusal to travel to Sweden without a non-refoulement guarantee had been legally justified, and that he had been wrongly convicted and sentenced, sentenced for bail violation. From the perspective of my UN mandate, this was, of course, an accurate and welcome assessment. Nevertheless, I was under no illusion. The U.S., Britain, and Sweden, and Ecuador had not spent a decade and millions of dollars persecuting, defaming, and spying on Assange, only to now set him free on humanitarian grounds. I therefore feared that, in truth, Baratser's denial of extradition was not a victory for the rule of law, humanity, or even justice, but rather a brilliantly conceived trap. Water. The primary purpose of persecuting Assange is not, and never has been, to punish him personally, but to establish a generic precedent with a global deterrent effect on other journalists, publicists, and activists. This purpose, Judge Barry Sir, has had achieved with terrifying effectiveness. Her ruling not only confirmed the entire legal rationale of the United States, which ultimately amounts to criminalizing investigative national security journalism as espionage, but it also expressly extended the scope of this rationale to the British Official Secrets Act a piece of legislation which has served as a model for secrecy laws in many countries of the British Commonwealth. Thus, Judge Baratzer laid the legal foundation for the prosecution of anyone, anywhere in the world, who dared expose the dirty secrets of the government's concern and for depriving defendants of the right to justify their action based on public interest. 
In effect, she had set a legal precedent introducing an absolute duty of silence on classified evidence for state-sponsored crimes, a global lex omerta. In doing so, Judge Baratzer had fulfilled the entire wish list of the U.S. government. She had also allowed the extradition to go ahead. This certainly would have triggered an appeal by Assange, challenging the permissibility of her legal precedent before British High Court. At the High Court, the case would be examined by a more experienced and authoritative panel of judges whose decision would be difficult to predict. In order to avoid a full legal review of her judgment by the High Court, Judge Baratzer had to forestall an appeal by Assange's legal team. If the main rationale of the first instance ruling remained unchallenged, the, und the desired legal precedent would be created under the radar of the higher levels of the judiciary, of the public, and of the independent press. <clears throat> a, president, a precedent whereby troublesome to journalists could be prosecuted and silenced worldwide and press freedom would be de facto abolished. By refusing to extradite Assange, Judge Baratzer conveniently put the ball into the court of the United States. This means that it would be up to the United States government and not Assange to lodge an appeal and therefore to select the legal questions that would be reviewed by the High Court. Predictably, the U.S. appeal would challenge only those aspects, only those aspects of Baratzer's ruling with which the U.S. government disagreed, in particular the findings that if extradited to the United States, Assange was at real risk of exposure to inhumane detention conditions and would almost certainly find a way to commit suicide. These were factors with which the United States could easily address without endangering the desired legal precedent of criminalizing investigative national security journalism. In fact, all the United States needed to do was provide the High Court with a diplomatic assurance that Assange would not be subjected to SAMs or other forms of inhumane treatment and that his suicide could be effectively prevented in U.S. custody. Based on such assurances, the appeals judges could potentially conclude that Assange's extradition would no longer be oppressive and permit his surrender to the United States. In this scenario, the British High Court would not have to examine any of Assange's legal objections regarding political nature of the prosecution, the prohibition of extraditions for political offenses, freedom of speech, or the systematic abuse of process throughout this case. Although the objections had been rejected in Baratzer's ruling and would not be revised, or sorry, revisited by the High Court as long as her judgment remained unchallenged in this respect. Thus, the only way to prevent Assange's fast-track extradition to the U.S. is based on diplomatic assurances was for Assange's lawyers to lodge a cross-appeal against Baratzer's ruling as far as those issues were concerned. But that would require frequent and extensive preparatory meetings with Assange, rendered practically impossible by his arbitrary isolation at Belmarsh. Not surprisingly, Baratzer's verdict did not cause undue distress on other side of the Atlantic. Without, without missing a beat, and perhaps rather too smoothly, the U.S. Department of Justice declared that while we are extremely disappointed in the court's ultimate decision, we are gratified that the United States prevailed on every point of law raised. 
In particular, the court rejected all of Mr. Assange's arguments regarding political motivation, political offense, fair trial, and freedom of speech. We will continue to seek Mr. Assange's extradition to the United States. Indeed, on that day, the U.S. government had come a big step closer to criminalizing inconvenient journalism. At the same time, ideal conditions had been created for Assange's non-extradition to be overturned on appeal. Baratzer's ruling of 4 January concluded with the words, I ordered the discharge of Julian and Paul Assange. Judge was fully aware, of course, that her order would not be executed, but would be appealed by the U.S. government. Two days later, she rejected Assange's release on bail grounds of flight risk during the appeals proceedings. The fact that the very same purpose, flight prevention, could have been achieved through guarded house arrest demonstrates that Assange's continued incarceration in Belmarsh has nothing to do with flight risk, but everything to do with wanting to keep him silenced and under pressure. As long as Assange remains isolated in prison, neither the United States nor the United Kingdom will be in a hurry to bring the extradition proceeding to a conclusion. The longer every procedural step can be spun out, the more Assange's health and stability will deteriorate, and the stronger the deterrent effect will be on other journalists and whistleblowers. As the authorities know very well, it is only a matter of time before Assange's resilience breaks. If he should die in prison, or if his mental health should deteriorate to the point where he can be stripped of his legal capacity and locked away in a closed psychiatric institution for the rest of his life, then the case should be closed without fear of judicial precedent of 4 January 2021 being overturned by a panel of conscientious judges at the higher British courts, the European Court of Human Rights, or ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court. Should Assange have the strength to withstand the pressure of his isolation until the end of the extradition proceedings? On the other hand, his resilience will no doubt be used against him as purported evidence disproving his medical frailty and suicide risk. On the judiciary has been instrumentalized for political purposes. There is no escape. Okay. It's been an hour and 25 minutes, kids. I gotta call it. We can finish this tomorrow, starting with playing out the plot. U.S. Appeal to the High Court of Justice. Ooh. Okay, so I have three people with me. You're welcome to call in for uh, about five minutes, and then I'll head out. So would anybody like to call and discuss any of the content? Oh, Gregor wants to discuss. Go ahead. Thanks for joining, Gregor. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Listen, I'm really enjoying these readings. I haven't... <clears throat> Research Julian much. I knew he was wrongly accused, but man, this just makes me angry. And thank you for bringing it to my attention. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I think when I started reading this book, I, I had no idea quite how devastating this was going to be um, in terms of, of a reading. And it has really, really blown my mind. Um, I was hacked yesterday. I think you were here. I'm not sure if you were here or not. But I was I was hacked on the reading of this this last chapter yesterday. And I don't know what the significance of that would be, but there may have been some opposition to me stating the things that are being said here. Gregor, comments? I'm here. Yeah, I just I 
the, the, you know, the number of times I see things happen on streams that are at least coincidences that seem suspicious. It's just more that we more and more apparent we need to figure out a way to shine the light on our government and get rid of some of the bureaucracies. And with that, I will let you move. <laughs> You're very kind. Thank you, Gregor. I'm going to take William really quickly. William, you got three minutes till call, I call the bell. Is this Robin Quivers? <laughs> no. <laughs> Gosh, you remind me of her. Anyway, what I, in the live chat, I added, um, remember Siggy, the one who lied? <laughs> oh, Siggy. Oh, that pedophile maniac. Yeah. He was the paid informant, FBI paid informant. Oh, yeah. There Pay for say. <laughs> Unreal. Like, there's still a case against Julian with this. It's, it's, it's just what an absolute uh, circus and stage event this all is. I mean, if Julian suffers, don't get me wrong. I'm just saying. Oh, my well, God. It, it's, a, uh, it's got Kafka trial all the way through. It yeah. is unbelievable. And the pressure, I think that there may be even some judicial tampering that the U.S. intelligence, you know, state should face. Because I think this is criminal. They're tampering with the US, the, the British judicial system. Mm -hmm. The fact that they kind of prolapsed their own process um, so so obviously... It's obvious that they they just just flouted all the conventions, you know, not allowing him to sit with his own counsel. That was unbelievable. Right. Yeah. That should have never happened in a Western country, and never to Assange, never to Assange, never to any journalist, never to any journalist. Mm -hmm. And um, so, the the track record that we're growing. In in recent years, is is growing worse over time, and it's it's through, genuinely through attrition. Um, I don't want to go long, but uh, citizen journalism is is very important, and I'm being resold on on the package, but it's it's the manner of going about it. I have some FOIAs to file that I have not filed yet. Um, I just need to make sure that I'm clearing the hurdle with some other higher things. If I get hired with the government, there's a lot of rules. Yeah. And if I am hired with government, I'm, I need to know what they are so that I'm not legally um, legally strictured from kind of filing an information request on another department or something. So yeah. I just need to know the rules. Anyways, so I appreciate everyone who's been in attendance and for 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 sticking it out with the truth you know please come back tomorrow I will have the rest of this reading you know we're 90% done here and um, I look forward to seeing you guys here tomorrow at around 4pm thanks for joining thanks for listening before you go hit the subscribe button remember that callers are welcome subscribers can access unsanctioned citizen podcast archives at substack automatic iHeartRadio podcasts and call in please stay in touch we want to hear from you visit sheila m dean